Our scripture reading this evening is from Isaiah 63, verse 15 through chapter 64. Tonight, I hope to, with God's help, bring a bit of a pre-Reformation service in anticipation of Reformation Lord's Day next week. We want to see the need tonight of stirring up prayer for general, gen, genuine Reformation, which uh, Dr. Kaivenhoven will speak about uh, next week. So Isaiah 63, 15 through 64, 12. Hear the Word of God. Look down from heaven, and behold from the habitation of Thy holiness and of Thy glory. Where is Thy zeal and Thy strength, the sounding of Thy bowels and of Thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless Thou art our Father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledgeth not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast Thou made us to err from Thy ways, and hardened our heart from Thy fear? Return for Thy servant's sake, the tribes of Thine inheritance. The people of Thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down Thy sanctuary. We are Thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by Thy name. O oh, that Thou wouldst rend the heavens, that Thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at Thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth. The fire causeth the waters to boil, to make Thy name known to Thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at Thy presence. When Thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at Thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside Thee, what He hath prepared for him that waiteth for Him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember Thee in Thy ways. Behold, Thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon Thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of Thee. For Thou hast hid Thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay. And thou art potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. 
Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? May God bless the reading of his sacred word. There is a black Toyota cruiser with its lights on in the parking lot. Our text words this evening are from Isaiah 64, and we're going to focus especially on verses 1, 2, and 7. Let me read those three verses again. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. So our theme with God's help this night is, Rend the heavens, Lord, and rend our hearts. Rend the heavens, Lord, and our hearts. And we want to look at four thoughts. First, the pressure of desperate need. That's verse 1a. Second, the presence of the glorious Lord. Verses 1b and 2a. Third, the purpose of our prayer. 2b. And then fourth, the prayerfulness of our prayer. Verse 7. So the pressure, the presence, the purpose, and the prayerfulness. Our text tonight is an urgent, pressing prayer that is pressed out of the heart of the prophet Isaiah. He's directing Israel, especially the God-fearing remnant of Israel, how to pray when they are about to be held captive in Babylon. And he provides for us in this passage a number of lessons for us as we seek also in the week to come to storm the mercy seat of God for reformation and revival. As we remember God's hand in ages past, we are to cry out, do it again, Lord. Even rend the heavens and come down. Give a great awakening. Bigger than the great awakening. Be a wonder-working God. And so Isaiah feels this pressure from within as he looks at the circumstances 
as he looks at the darkness of the day, as he looks at the future with all its impossibilities, with all its depressing, uh, dissipating conviction about the things of God, and he cries out, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. The very words, oh, that, in Hebrew, express a deep longing. A longing that, for example, Abraham expressed when he said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. In other words, if only you bless my son, who's so dear to me, with your life-giving covenant blessings. That's what Abraham was praying. That's what Isaiah is praying here. Oh Lord, if only, please Lord, it is our deep desire, our great need, if only it would come to pass, if only Thou wouldst rend the heavens and revive us and reform us in the midst of all the adversity around us and all the sin within us. John Kelvin says of these words, Believers must burst forth into earnest prayer when they are in serious adversity. Since verse 7 of chapter 63, the chapter before our reading, Isaiah has been remembering God's love for his people, displayed so vividly by saving them from slavery in Egypt. And yet this memory, at the same time as it is sweet, is painful. Because God is sending His people into exile, and Isaiah knows this, to Babylon for their sins. It's like they're going back to another Egypt because they've sinned away the privilege of their covenant relationship with God. And Isaiah echoes this painful sorrow in poignant where questions. Where questions that he raises with God. He says in verse 11 in chapter 63, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea? And then where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? And verse 15, Where is thy zeal and thy strength and thy mercies? You see, here's the point that Isaiah wants to teach us. Israel's greatest tragedy was not, was not the political and military and financial catastrophe that was about to fall on her. But her greatest tragedy was the spiritual abandonment of their covenant-keeping God. Israel had a dire need for the, the reviving presence, the reformation presence of the Most High, their covenant keeper, their God of ages past. Yet God's favorable presence seems so distant to Isaiah now. He knows they're about to be carried away into Babylon. He knows it's a just punishment. For Israel has been sinning blatantly against God, setting up other idols. He says back in chapter 59, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear you. And so that's why he cries out in chapter 63, verse 17, on the vestibule of our text, 
O Lord, why hast Thou made us to err from Thy ways and hardened our heart from Thy fear? Return! Return! For Thy servant's sake, the tribes of Thine inheritance. Charles Spurgeon puts it so well. There is nothing the church so much bemoans as an absent God. Samuel Rutherford put it so well with regard to the individual believer. The absence of God, the silence of God, is the bitterest ingredient that the Christian has to drink in his cup of sorrow. And that's why David said, Be not silent unto me, lest if thou be silent unto me, I become like them that go down into the pit. Hence the cry. I can't do without God. The groan. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. That thou wouldst come down. You see, it seems God had closed off the way. It seemed as if Israel had sinned themselves out of the covenant. And she was unable to reopen that door. In fact, she felt she had no right to access with God. As verses 6 and 7 say. We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. This fall, it seems like the leaves are staying on the tree a bit longer. But we all know that won't last. The wind will come and rip those leaves off the tree and they'll be blown away. That's Israel's condition. She's forfeited her God. But you see, when Israel's fatherly God, and that's why Isaiah keeps pleading here, Art thou not our Father, our covenant-keeping Father? When Israel's fatherly God comes to convict her of her sin and show her what damage her sin has produced in her relationship with Him, you see, then Israel is going to cry out with Isaiah, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. And dear church family, this is what we need today. This is what... Every true believer also needs today. You know, it's usually our fault when God hides His face from us. As God says in Hosea 5.15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. You see, the Lord at times withdraws Himself from us to convict us of our sin and to teach us our frailty, our helplessness apart from Him and our radical dependence upon Him so that we arise and return to Him and seek Him with all that is within us, confessing not only, but also forsaking our sin. And at such times, He always convicts us that as polluted, guilty sinners whose best righteousnesses are like stench rags in God's sight, filthy, foul-smelling rags that we don't ever deserve, that He would ever return to us again. We forfeited that already in our first fallen Adam, of course. 
But when the Holy Spirit begins to work within us, what happens then, you see, is though we realize we deserve nothing, as we heard also this morning's sermon, though we realize we, we deserve nothing but death and hell, we cannot live apart from God. That's what faith does. When we confess and forsake our sins, we can't live without His grace in Christ. We must have Him. Our cry for grace becomes urgent. In fact, we might even mistakenly feel that we are more eager to be converted to God than He is to convert us. But that's not so. God is always in the business of converting sinners. God delights to save. But you see, the God who puts this cry in Isaiah's heart puts it in the hearts of needy sinners still today. Oh, that thou wouldst, thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down. How America needs this today. How our churches need this today. How our family, families need this today. How our own soul needs this today. That we would go to God with all our sin and confess it all and forsake it all and plead for those personal pronouns that Isaiah speaks of here so often in these verses. Verse 16 and 17. Thou, O Lord, art our Father and our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting, O Lord. Why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear? Oh, sanctify us if we are saved. And if we're not saved, save us and bring us, bring us all into greater conformity to Christ. Give us genuine reformation, genuine revival. Now, there can also be times when God withdraws Himself from faithful believers for reasons we simply don't understand. Yes, Most commonly, the reasons lie in us. But there are times when we are not walking in any known sin, when God can still withdraw Himself from us for reasons beyond our comprehension. Reasons that we simply have to trust, mysterious reasons, that will serve His glory and our good. Westminster Confession actually speaks about those as it meditates on the classic verse, Isaiah 50, verse 10, when it speaks of believers losing the consciousness of full assurance of faith through God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and have no light. A Puritan William Grinnell commenting on this said that the Christian must learn to trust even in a withdrawing God even in a withdrawing God. And though we seldom understand our Father's withdrawals from us when we are not walking in known sin, we nevertheless learn to grow in appreciation that those chastening withdrawings are designed to make us more and more partakers, as Hebrews 12 says, of the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. And these are motivated, you see, as Isaiah 
says repeatedly in this whole context, by our fatherly God, by His fatherly discipline, which teaches us to live by faith in His Son, by His fatherly sovereignty, which teaches us to live dependently upon Him, and by His fatherly wisdom, which teaches us that He knows and does what is best for us, even in His withdrawals. And so in those withdrawals, as we miss Him and groan over that missing, we, we cry out the more, don't we? Oh, that Thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. Please, Lord, come. Lord, we can't do without Thee. We would take hold of Thee. We would take hold of Thee in our cries and prayers. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, This is true prayer, not a mere casual expression of our desire, not something perfunctory and half-hearted. Real prayer means taking hold of God and not letting Him go. Taking hold of God, laying hold upon Him, pleading with Him, reasoning with Him, beseeching Him, being like Jacob, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. So if we're going to have true reformation, that involves a rending of the heavens from both sides. It involves the Holy Spirit rending our hearts, and it involves God Himself rending the heavens and coming down. The prophet Joel says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Not your garments. In other words, God's not interested in the, the outward show. Rend your heart, and turn unto the Lord our God, your God, Joel continues, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. So what is Isaiah asking God to do? Well, the pressure of the need, of the darkness of the age, and the sense of the absence of God, God's favorable presence, that is, presses him so that he yearns for the presence of the glorious Lord God of Israel. He can't do without that. And blessed are you when you can't do without that. And you can't just live off of your conversion 20 years ago, or 10 years, or 5 years ago. But where you need the presence of God, day by day, this glorious Lord, to rend the heavens and come down. Our text goes on to say, and this is point two, the presence of the glorious Lord, to come down that the mountains might flow down at thy presence as when the melting fire burneth, the first causeth the waters to boil. To rend here, the Hebrew word to rend, means to tear up, to rip apart, to forcefully pull apart. And it was the expression in Old Testament Israel of rending your garments, stretching them, ripping them. The picture here is that God who stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent, Isaiah 40 says, tears open a hole in the universe so that His glory may be poured out upon the earth. 
Edward Young, who has a three-volume commentary on the book of Isaiah, a classic commentary, says this, Isaiah, in verse 1b here, is pleading for direct divine intervention through the Messiah. He's pleading for what David experienced in 2 Samuel 22, verse 9. He bowed the heavens and came down. You see, salvation, salvation is like a second exodus, a greater redemption than Israel received through Moses. Isaiah speaks here of God's coming in terms that remind us of of the theophany at Sinai, when Mount Sinai was all together in a smoke, Exodus 19 says, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And our our immediate response when we read Isaiah or Exodus 19 at that point is that we think, well, God's coming down on Mount Sinai to destroy His enemies. But not so. God came down on Mount Sinai to reveal Himself in His will to His people and to draw them into covenant relationship with Himself. And so even though Isaiah here uses majestic, even, even frightening language, especially verse 3, where he says, when thou didst terrible things, which we look not for, thou camest down, and the mountains flowed at thy presence. But he's saying here, God doesn't just come to judge the wicked. He's praying for God to come to his redeemed people to renew that covenant, to make them holy. He comes with the fire of his holiness, not to destroy them, but to purge them and to refine them. And that's what you find in all true reformation, all true revival. God doesn't come to destroy, but He comes strongly. He intervenes strongly in order to purge us and to refine us so that sin becomes sin and grace becomes grace and Christ becomes Christ. And His presence becomes so real. That's what we need today more than anything. The reality of this sovereign, glorious, majestic, kind, merciful God. That's what happens when Reformation breaks through, when revival dawns. There's a sense of almost a tangible reality of God. Is that what you're longing for? Is that what you're crying after? Is that what you pray for in your desperate need? That this covenant God would come and visit you and fulfill His promises of grace in you. That the God of terrible wrath would be the God of incomprehensible grace. That He pour Himself out upon you in His sovereign mercy and keep covenant with you. And that you would experience what verse 4 says here. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Him that waiteth for him. You see, what Isaiah wants most of all is God. Not even what God will do for us, but that God will be with us. That's what he wants. Like Moses, take not thy presence away. If thou don't go up with us, carry us not up hence. Rend the heavens 
and come down. We want Thee, Lord. We want Thee more than Thy benefits. We want God Himself. We don't just want some blessing. We want Thyself to come down in Christ Jesus and be our God, our covenant-keeping God. We want the covenant language to be vibrant reality in our lives. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Or even more wonderfully, I will be your Father and you shall be my Son. The relational reality. That's what happens when God comes with reformation and revival. That becomes real. In Christ, of course, only in Christ, outside of Christ, God can only be a consuming fire and everlasting burning. And so the answer to this cry is, of course, Jesus. Because only in Christ can God come and do this. Because God rent the heavens when His Son descended to this earth as bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. To send His Son to suffer the very hellish agonies and death that we all deserve. To pay the full ransom price for all our sins. And on that day, on that day, that awesome day, that terrible day, when our Lord suffered and died naked and bled on the cross... On that day, Mount Zion quaked and the sky turned black while the fire of God's wrath against elect sinners burned in the body and soul of their substitute and caused the affections of Jesus' heart to boil with sorrowful agony until at last He voluntarily gave up the ghost. But then He rent the heavens again. God rent the heavens in sending His Son down and He rent the heavens again in causing His Son to be raised from the dead and to ascend into heaven at His right hand with perfect righteousness to justify, to preserve His own. You see, it's all in Jesus that God can come back and come down and can renew and not scatter us into the Babylon of this world. So that's what we're asking for in Reformation, in Revival. We're asking for the whole Trinity to be involved. For the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit, to fill us with Himself. To fill us with lovely thoughts of the substitutionary sacrifice of His righteous Son. And to apply the redeeming work of that Son, by the Holy Spirit, to our hearts. Reformation, revival, is a Trinitarian work. A Trinitarian work. And the Holy Spirit is the one who completes that work. Who brings it home to the soul. The kind of revival under which this nation was birthed and reared. That led to the Great Awakening in the 1740s. But also came back in the 1790s in a third Great Awakening, which lasted for 35 years till 1830s. 35-year period of revival. Not as dramatic a revival as the Great Awakening, but some scholars say more steady revival. 35 years of blessing. Oh God, do it again. Rend the heavens and come down. And don't let this nation, don't let the churches sell themselves out to the facade and the devices of Satan. But fill us with thyself.
It's interesting when you read the journals of great revivalists like, like George Woodfield that often this language is used. Often. Time and again, George Woodfield talks about what God did under his preaching. Most famously, of course, to the miners uh, who would come out of the mines to hear him preach, come out of the coal pits with their blackened faces, and they'd be weeping under his preaching. And he, he talks in his journals about how he could see the white of their faces as their tears trickled down through their black cheeks from their work. And he would see the white streaks of their tears. And he would hear them cry out. And he'd write in his journal, The Lord God came down today. Now that's possible, of course, without the outward tears. It's possible in the inward heart. But you see, the need, the need of the Lord to do wonderful things, to do a saving work. We need the Lord to do these things. Oh, Spirit of God, come down. We need thy reviving power. That's what Isaiah is saying. Don't let the Lord alone. My dad used to always say to th- that to us as kids, as children. He'd say, don't ever step on your conscience and don't ever let the Lord alone. Keep going to Him. Keep trusting Him. Keep falling upon Him. Come down, Lord. I need Thee. I need Thee. And yet, yet in the same context, Isaiah is saying, God must complain about his people that, that it seems like there's no one. In fact, he says no one. It's an exaggeration, of course. It's like Elijah saying, I'm the only one left. But no one in the church is stirring up himself to take hold of God, we would say today. How few there are who are really pleading for the presence of Almighty God. doesn't mean that people aren't saved. But you see, there can be so much settling on the leaves, so much lukewarmness, so much worldliness in the church, far too much unbelief, far too much half-heartedness. And what that means, dear friends, is that we've got work to do, knee work to do, crying out to God for reformation and revival. That's why Isaiah brings the complaint of God. There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. See, when we ask God to rend the heavens and come down, we actually, we actually are asking Him for a fulfillment of His, of, of His promises, that He would come back to His Zion, that He would eschatologically in the last days fulfill His promises ultimately with His second return. When we, when we really ask for God to come down, we're asking Him to come down and bless us today and tomorrow, but also to come and visit us with His everlasting salvation and to take us and bring us to glory to be with Him where He is forever. Christ will come with flaming fire, Second Thessalonians 1 says, verses 7 and 8. And heaven and earth will flee from His presence, Revelation twenty eleven. 
You see, then God will have the ultimate rending of the heavens. The ultimate coming down to take His people to be with Him forever. And so there's a sense in which our groaning, our groaning for Him to come down, is going to always be there until Christ raises us from the dead and glorifies us with Him, as Paul describes in Romans 8. On Christ's great day of ascension, He was received back into glory to intercede for His bride and to preserve her until the second coming when He will rend the heavens and come down to resurrect His own to be with Him forever. And then Revelation 21, 2 and 3 says, God Himself will be with them and will be their God as He brings down the new Jerusalem from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, what's the obvious question that needs to come to all of us, to you and to me, from these words? The obvious question is, can you live without God? Can you live without the presence of God? Do you know what it is to long for the bridegroom? Can you be satisfied without Christ? Do you know what it means to groan for a greater presence of God in your life? Oh Lord, rend the heavens and come down. I need Thee. Draw me. I will run after Thee. Turn me and I shall be turned. Convert me and I shall be converted. Lord, I can't go on without Thee. That brings revival. Reformation. When that Spirit is there, that's what you see time and again in church history. When the Holy Spirit comes and works that spirit of needing God. And there's a crying and a groaning out for God. Groaning after God. In a prayer of faith. And the Spirit pours out Himself. And does wondrous things. Now what's the purpose of all that? Well, that's our third thought. And just very briefly here. Verse, verse 2b explains it uh, very well when Isaiah says to make thy name known to thy adversaries that the nations may tremble at thy presence. You see, the purpose of God's coming down wasn't just to satisfy Isaiah. It wasn't just to say, well, now the Lord is with us. As great as that is. But it was to get God glory. God's glory would be known and honored by all people. God's theophany is always purposeful. That the world might know who and what the God of Israel is. That's the purpose of Christ's incarnation. That's the purpose of His saving and suffering work. That's the purpose of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of every authentic reformation and revival. That's the purpose of the second coming of our Lord. All things take place so that God may be known and God may be glorified. And so all our prayers, all our groanings after God should always contain this element that God will get glory for Himself. It's not ultimately about me and about my satisfaction and about my good relationship with Him, as important as that is. But it's ultimately about this, that He would cause His face to shine upon us, that Thy way may be known upon the earth, 
Psalm 67 says, and consequently, that all the nations shall praise thee. William Cooper expresses that so beautiful, beautifully in his poetry in, in two simple lines. O red in the heavens, come quickly down and make a thousand hearts thy own. You see, when you, when you really pray this way, then you're not just praying for, for you and for your immediate nuclear family. You're praying for the whole church. You're, you're praying for the whole nation. You're praying for the whole world. You want to see the earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord, even from sea to sea. God's glory in Christ ought to be our supreme motivation to pray and our most powerful argument to present to God in prayer for His coming down. You see, we are to seek revival, not for sinful reasons, such as our honor or our desire only, or the expectation that somehow revival will make our land perhaps more prosperous outwardly. All of that may be true, but we are to pray for revival, for the glory of God's name. God sees through all of our hypocritical praying and disdains it. But if we seek revival for His glory, that's when we pray according to His will. And we can't know when that revival will come. But we may be sure that God is pleased with such prayers and will answer them at His time and according to His wisdom, out of His love and by His power. Let let us make it our prayer daily, God helping us to pray for revival, to pray for reformation. Also in this coming week, as we commemorate next Lord's Day, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. Well, how do we do that? How do we truly take hold of God and take hold of ourselves in prayer? Well, that's our forethought. So God rending the heavens and rending our hearts is our need. And we feel that need, first of all, as a pressure because of our sin and our need for His presence. Then we feel, second, the presence of the glorious Lord is critical in our lives. And we feel, third, the purpose of our prayer for Him to rend the heavens is bigger than us. It's so that He might be glorified. But then, verse 7 tells us, the way to continue on clinging to Him till He comes down is to take hold of Him. To take hold of Him in prayer. And how do you do that? That's a bottom line practical question. How do you take hold of God? Well, I want to give you four thoughts here. First, you take hold of God by taking hold of yourself. And you take hold of yourself by understanding the priority of prayer. As Bunyan put it so well, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. Prayer is 
of fundamental importance in our lives. Prayer should always be the first thing rather than the last thing. It should be the spontaneous thing rather than the thing we do when we've tried everything else. Prayer is the breath of the soul. Prayer for a believer ought to come spontaneously. It ought to be always foremost in our mind. God forgive us when it's not. But to take hold of God, you need to have born within you a prayerful spirit. A a spirit that pleads with him, that beseeches him, that clings to him. A Jacob-like spirit. We remember the value of prayer. We remember the priority of prayer. When we take hold of ourselves, we remember that nothing is more valuable in this entire world than to have access to the God of the universe through prayer. It's far better to be in a small hut with a prayerful heart than to be in a king's palace without prayer. Then, too, we need to take hold of ourselves to speak with sincerity in prayer, to to have no secrets from God. When you take hold of yourself in prayer, you make yourself vulnerable to God. You're honest with Him. You own your own transgressions. You confess all to Him. The question isn't, how long do I pray? The question isn't the arithmetic of your prayer. The question is the sincerity of your prayer. It's not not the logic of your prayer that counts. It's pouring out your heart before the Lord. Tell Him everything about you and everything you need, even though you know He already knows everything about you. And you pour it all out. You confess it. You own your sin and your transgression. And you cultivate this continued spirit of prayer. To pray your way through each day. To pray your way longing for the presence of God. The Puritan Joseph Align put it so well when he said, When I am not often in prayer to my God, I feel like a bird out of his nest. And I'm never quiet in my soul till I'm back in my old way of communion with God. Oh, to have a familiarity with God through prayer, through communion with God. Like Philip Melanchthon, when he overheard Martin Luther pray in secret, praying aloud, he said, oh my God, with what holy familiarity and with what holy reverence did Master Martin pray. You see, that's, that's the way we need to come to God. Our Father, holy familiarity, who art in heaven, holy reverence. Take hold of yourself. Remember to whom you're coming when you come to the God of the universe. And you take hold of yourself in prayer. When you read the Bible for prayer, what gives you fodder for prayer but the Scriptures? Our best prayers are often just a recitation of bringing God's Word back to Him, pleading on the basis of His own Word. And we take hold of ourselves in prayer by taking hold of God, when we seek biblical balance in prayer, when we do use things like the Acts formula, we show adoration and then confession 
and thanksgiving and supplication to God as we come to him in prayer. We don't come with a grocery list and forget about adoring him. We don't have a prayer that does nothing but adore him and forgets our needs. We do both. And we confess our sins and we're thankful. So the first thing when you want to take hold of God is you've got to take hold of yourself. You've got to pray as he commands us to pray in the scripture. The second thing when you take hold of God in prayer is you learn to plead God's promises in prayer, particularly his promises. You set his promises before him, and you say to him, Lord, do as thou hast said. Thomas Manton wrote this, one good way to get comfort is to plead the promises of God in prayer. Show him his own handwriting, because he is tender of his own word. You know, the Puritans made much of this. They said, all communication with God is a two-way street. He comes to us through His Word, and we take that same Word, and we go back to Him with prayer. We bring His promises back to Him. John Trapp said, promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be importuned. That means urgently pressed with requests in His own words. Yea, to be sued upon His own bond. Wow. You read that and you go, this is amazing to sue God in his own word. Isn't that too bold? Oh, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven suffered the violence and the violent take it by force. We're to plead with God, you see. We're to say, Lord, thou hast said it. Do as thou hast said. We take hold of God when we turn God's promises back on him. William Gunnall Prayer is nothing but the promise reversed, or God's word formed into an argument and retorted by faith upon God again. So you plead the promises of God in the presence of God because you have a right to do that since all the promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. So you You do it always for Christ's sake. You do it always in Christ's name because all the promises are real and valid and fulfilled through our mediator. That's how you take hold of God. By the Spirit, groaning these groanings within you, pleading these promises. And thirdly, you take hold of God by looking to the glorious Trinity in prayer. Looking to the glorious Trinity in prayer. You know, prayer is a beautiful thing. Prayer is a triune thing. Every true prayer is a triune thing. I like to look at it this way. If you just follow my finger a moment here, it's a circular pattern. God the Father decrees every true prayer from eternity past. And then the Son, through His suffering, merits that true prayer. And sends His Spirit into our hearts to groan, groanings that are unutterable, so that the Spirit assists us in praying. And then, as the Spirit assists us in praying, the prayers go back up to the Son again, who salts them with the salt of His own sanctifying merits, and presents them acceptable back to the Father. 
You see, it's Father, Son, Spirit, Son, Father. It's like a necklace. There's like a cyclical element to prayer. It's triune from its origination to its ultimate answer. And so, by the grace of God, we read in Ephesians 2.18 how it tells us that we have, through Christ Jesus, access by one Spirit unto the Father. What a beautiful text that is. That's what I want to do in prayer. I don't always succeed, <laughs> and neither do you. But we, that's what we want to do in prayer. We want to have, through Christ Jesus, we want to get access to God the Father by the Spirit groaning within us. And there's a sweetness in that communion with God. There's a reality in that communion of God. There's a reality then to our cry, Oh, that Thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. And then finally, we take hold of God in prayer when, as we heard this morning, we believe in that God with heart and soul and mind and strength by His gracious Spirit that He will fulfill His own promises and that He will fulfill our poor prayers. When we really believe that He's a prayer giving, a prayer hearing, a prayer answering God, we're taking hold of Him. We're taking hold of Him. You see, faithless prayer is fruitless prayer. When we don't believe He will answer, we call into question His fatherly relationship to us. But when we see that God is our Father through His Son, and by His Spirit He will work in us true prayer, we hear the admonition of Jesus to Thomas, be not faithless, but believing. And we take hold of Him by faith. We hang on to Him. We hang on to His Word. And we plead for His promises to be fulfilled. And then you see, we have this quiet confidence when you take hold of God this way, even as you wrestle with Him. But there's also a quiet confidence. Prayer is something beautiful. It's both a wrestling, but also, as Calvin put it, it's a climbing into my Father's lap and whispering my needs in His ear, trusting He will hear my cry. Oh, that Thou wouldst rend the heavens. And come down. So there's an urgency to that prayer. But there's also a sweetness, a childlike disposition to that prayer. A quiet confidence. Thou wilt do it, Lord. Thou wilt do as thou hast said. So what are the major takeaways of this text and of this sermon tonight? Well, I want to give you seven quick thoughts as I close. Seven takeaways. Number one, when you are prone not to pray this way, stop and think. Stop and think of what God has done in ages past when He hears the cries of His people. I spent the whole summer, one summer, studying revivals in church history. That was my special study for that summer. I read many books on revival. 
I could scarcely find one revival that didn't begin with the spirit of prayer. Sometimes it was little children praying in a barn in Scotland. (laughs) Ten-year-old, twelve-year-old children that God blessed, revived their hearts, moved them to pray, and they impacted their parents, and they were converted. They began to pray, and God poured out His Spirit. Remember the importance of prayer. Corporately, in the church, I've said this to you so many times, so many times, I feel like I've said it in vain, the church must pray together. Certainly, we can do far, far better than we are doing at present. The needs are great, but also we must learn to pray, to wrestle in private, remembering what God has done in ages past. Even when a few have gotten on their faces before God and cried out, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. God has done great things in ages past. In response to the promise-laced prayers of his people. Number two, remember that when we seek to pray as Isaiah did, we have an advantage over Isaiah. Isaiah saw something of Christ to come, actually a lot, and of the cross. But we have the advantage of having the whole New Testament in the past and all that Christ has done and the whole truth of the, of the New Testament Word of God. And the Holy Spirit has already poured Himself out on Pentecost. The mother of all revivals and all reformations has happened in the New Testament church. So we don't come to God on the basis of His promise that Christ will come as Isaiah did, but we come with the promise not only in hand that he will come again, but also that he has come in the past. So we have the fullness of the cross. We have the fullness of the New Testament age. We have the fullness of the outpouring of the Spirit. Let us take advantage of that to pray with boldness to our Father, with assurance of faith for the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And three, remember that great possibilities flow out of fervent prayer. God has greater things to show us. Jeremiah 33 says, if we will but ask. If we will but ask. Sometimes we ask amiss and we don't receive. Other times we don't ask and we don't receive. But when we ask for God's glory, that's point three of the sermon, For God's glory, we will receive. John Newton put it this way, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power as such, none can ever ask too much. And four, grasp those promises of God when you pray. In fact, when there's promises in the Bible that are dear to you, write them out, memorize them. Use them in your prayers again and again. And use prayers of future blessing that are promised. Prayers like, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11 verse 9. 
Lord, say to him, Thou hast promised that the kingdom of thy Son will prevail over the world and cover it as the waters cover the sea. Do it, Lord. Number five. When you call upon the Lord to rend the heavens, rend your own heart over your own sin. Groan over your remaining unbelief, worldliness, lust, hardness of heart. And say, Lord, let the revival, let the reformation, let it start with me. Let it start with me. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 57. And six, when you pray for revival, look to the merciful and compassionate heart of your Father in heaven through Jesus. He is our Father, Isaiah says here repeatedly. And will not our Father give more of His Spirit's work to His children if they ask Him? Will He give you a stone if you ask for a fish? No, He's a fatherly God who delights to be wrestled with. He delights to hear us emptying ourselves before Him and pleading on His fullness. And finally, number seven. Make this prayer your constant theme. Red in the heavens and come down. Don't pray for revival for a short season and then give up. But pray for it and keep praying for it. Keep praying for it. I have a godly friend in Scotland who told me recently, I've been praying for revival for more than 50 years. And I'm going to pray for it till the day I die. Charles Spurgeon said, if you want to rend the heavens, you must rend it by your constant prayers. Don't leave the Lord alone. Take hold of Him and cry out. Rend the heavens and come down, O God, that the mountains might flow at Thy presence. Amen. Gracious God, Forgive us for our prayerless spirit. Forgive us for our Laodicean lukewarmness. Do not spit us out of thy mouth. Make and keep us a praying people. As we anticipate commemorating Reformation next week, be with Dr. Kivenhoven as he preaches that sermon. Lord, reform and revive us. Stir up, even in preparation for that commemoration, a spirit of prayer within us that we may come up to thy house eager to hear what the Lord has to say to us. O oh God, rend the heavens and come down. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.